2: Welcome to Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, presented by New York Lottery. Thanks for being with us. He's Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. And multiple ways you can interact with us here on the program. You give us a ring at 201-939-4513. You could also chime in on Twitter, hashtag GiantsChat. Directly interact with the two of us. I'm at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. And as a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network brought to you by Investors Bank on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So Joe Judge addressed the media right before we went on. We'll give you an overview of that, and then we'll really delve into this second matchup between the Giants and Washington. They met three weeks ago, of course. They met Live Stadium. The Giants hung on for the one-point victory, 20-19. to 19, But there are some injuries of note in terms of both sides. We'll get into some strategy and adjustments that both teams need to make. Paul, how's everything on your end?
1: Good morning, Lance. Beautiful, sunny day here in East Rutherford. I just came from practice, and quite honestly, very good to see Devontae Freeman uh, moving around very well. I know he's coming off of that sprained ankle. The Giants did not have him available for this past game against Tampa Bay. I would say things are looking very much up for him to uh, be in this rematch against Washington. And remember, he ran the ball very effectively uh, against the red team uh, at MetLife Stadium, had over 60 yards on limited carries. I would say uh, that would be a welcome addition to the lineup.
2: Yeah, they ran the ball 132 yards total on 26 carries. And Freeman, to your point, had 18 for 61. And that was really his first game where he was doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Wayne Goldman and Alfred Morris, I, I think, were effective against Tampa Bay on Monday night. But the more, the merrier. And I think the Giants want to continue what has been all of a sudden a consistent aspect of the team, Paul. I remember earlier in the season, the Giants were pretty much dead last in rushing yards per game. It was Not anywhere near a strong point, and I'm not saying that all of a sudden they have moved up the charts and they're a top 10 rushing unit, but I do think that's one area of the team that has made significant progress as a result of, in Saquon Barkley's absence... What Wayne Goleman, Devontae Freeman, and, of course, what we saw Monday night with Alfred Morris, mixing and matching guys in the offensive line, improving in that department.
1: Well, in each of the last three games, they've run for over 100 yards as a team. Now, I know that Daniel Jones has certainly been part of that. But the truth of the matter is this offensive line is starting to come together a little bit better. And that's even with Shane Lemieux making his NFL debut against the buccaneers. Giants currently at just under 100 yards a game rushing, which is 27th in the league. Now, yes, you're absolutely right. That's something that's got to improve, but considering that they were down in the low 80s, you know, just a few weeks ago and and really at the bottom of the barrel, this is certainly something that's trending in the right direction.
2: No doubt about it. Joe Judge spoke to the media, as I mentioned earlier today. No major takeaways. I thought it was interesting in terms of just the logistics. And, Paul, you've been involved in traveling on the road with the team. They are taking the train, he said, to Washington. And they're going to make sure that they're on top of all the protocols. I think it's interesting. You know, this is just another layer that a head coach needs to plan for and think about, whereas in previous years it was – enough to just have to worry about game planning and preparing for the opponent. Now you have to worry about the framework of where guys sit, when you put them on the bus, not to put all the same guys from the same positional group together. It's just interesting to hear Joe Judge, and the Giants are not on an island, of course. Every team is dealing with this, but just the way you structure travel is a lot different than what it was over the last few seasons, and those moves those little nuances of travel could go a long way in determining how effective and how well your team navigates the coronavirus because not to be a fear factor situation here, but we have seen a number of teams have positive cases here or there and they're doing their due diligence to make sure that it does not spread across the rest of the roster.
1: You know, maybe the best way to explain this to people who may not know how an NFL team travels is to explain to them that It truly is a team effort if you're going to follow all of the protocols, much like it's a team effort and you need all 11 on each side of the ball on every single snap. You also need your entire team, not just your players, but your coaching staff, your equipment personnel. Uh, You need your your, um, support personnel. They all have to not only follow the protocols by their own individual selves, but they also need to make sure that they're helping everybody, out, everybody else out to make sure that they are doing the same thing. Look what happened with the Raiders. They, they've now been hit again with yeah. another violation to the point where this morning they have not only been penalized a tremendous amount of money, they've also lost a sixth-round draft pick in the upcoming draft, Lance. This is, this is not to be taken lightly in any way, shape, or form, not on the, the man on the street level and not on the NFL level. Everybody must cooperate to make sure that you do the best that you can to follow the rules, the regulations, and the protocols so that nobody has to pay a a price for something that, that somebody carelessly made a mistake with.
2: And in addition to the Raiders, according to multiple reports, the league's investigating the Niners for what transpired leading up to the Packers game. A few guys were placed on the COVID reserve list, as well as the Steelers. And it has to do with whether or not players are wearing face masks. Because if you notice, Paul, in the Thursday night game last night, when the Packers and the Niners were playing, this is because the league now has adjusted some of the rules and regulations. When players are on the sidelines now and they're taking their helmets off, They're required now to wear masks. I mean, we saw it last night. Aaron Rodgers, you know, guys can converse and have conversations. Nobody's saying that they can't communicate, but they want to make sure that the players are on top of things and they're practicing that consistently, not just in the facility, but outside the facility, also during games. And the more and more that becomes second nature, the more and more then they adjust to that, and it serves as an extra barrier of protection so that, God forbid, we don't see another outbreak like what happened in Tennessee duplicate itself again.
1: Well, to understand a little bit about the extremes of what we're dealing with, with the travel for these NFL teams, as Judge explained, and I'm sure if there are people who are going to listen to the video conference later on on Giants.com, you know, it's, it's a deal where they're going to get on the train They'll charter the train, the Amtrak, down to Washington, but the train's got to be disinfected. That that whole thing has got to be cleaned out before they get on. And then they get on the train, they they go down to Washington, it's about a three-hour trip. Now they've got to get on buses from the train station to get to where they're going to be staying for the game. Well, guess what? Those buses need to be cleaned up and and germ-free, et cetera, et cetera. So... It, it's it's you know, you have to look every step of the way. You have to make sure that you're, you're taking all the care and precautions necessary so that there is no screw up. And, and believe me, Lance, I fully believe that there are some people who have been, you know, uh, flagged for a positive test or been flagged for, you know, being in close contact with someone who was positive where it was totally unintentional. It just happened to be a happenstance because this virus does not differentiate who it's going to attack. It just doesn't. So you could do everything right and still get zapped. So you have to try your best to make sure that you are within the protocols so that you lessen the chances of having a problem. And even Coach was saying that on the train, usually one of the things that people do on the train, they play cards together, they, they commiserate, they walk up and down the aisles, they'll, they'll sit around each other. That's part of the beauty of the train ride because there's so much room on the train and there's so much togetherness on the train. It's a great bonding trip. I I actually love going on the the, the train charter going down to Washington. It's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, trip of the season, which, of course, is now out the window because none of the broadcasters are allowed to travel. Well, that's all got to stop now. Now they have to act as if they are on a plane where the regulations are because of covid you get your assigned seat, you stay there. That's it. That's it. There's no, there's no fraternization going on. It's just not allowed.
2: Well, because the whole point is also they don't want guys in the same positional groups getting warm and cozy with one another and then, God forbid, once again, one player tests positive. you got to worry about contact tracing and so forth. Now, that brings me to the offensive line because Will Hernandez is still on the COVID-19 reserve list and Joe Judge was asked about his status because it's possible he could be removed from that list as early as tomorrow, but there's no major update. They're keeping close tabs on him. They're going through all the necessary steps. I would say given the fact that Will Hernandez has not practiced all week, highly unlikely that he's going to play Shane Lemieux, in all likelihood, is going to get another start at left guard. As far as next week is concerned, we'll see whether or not Hernandez gets back to practice because usually practice is the major indicator of the likelihood of a player taking part in a game. And, you know, this is now another golden opportunity for the Giants to build off of what they put forth against Tampa Bay, which was an overall strong performance, at least from the eye test, You know, you didn't see that disruptive force from the Tampa Bay front ruin the game. And now they're going up against a Washington front, which has been one of the strongest teams in terms of getting after the quarterback. We know they have depth. We know they have guys that they can rotate. This, to me, is another good test for the combo of Andrew Thomas... As well as Shane Lemieux, and seeing what they could do, and whether or not they could put together back-to-back consistent performances.
1: Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that, Lance. And it's also going to be another opportunity for the Giants to look at the opposite corner from James Bradway. Ryan Lewis was placed Bradbury, on injured. Yes, uh, Bradbury. Yes, uh, Ryan Lewis was placed on injured reserve this morning. We know he did not play against the Buccaneers, and that meant that Isaac Yottam, was the guy who wound up, you know, taking those snaps? That was his opportunity to get in there. And I think it's been a mixed bag for everybody who has had a chance to play on that opposite corner. Uh, who's it going to be this week? Does Yadam get a second game in a row to show his wares? Do the Giants go back to Ballantine? Do they go to somebody like Harper? Do they go to, some, you know, I mean, there are certainly a lot of different ways they could go. None of us knew going into the Buccaneers game who that guy was going to be. We just knew the Giants had maybe four or five guys that they could choose from or even rotate, and it turned out they basically gave the job to Yadam for the evening. And, you know, I-, I thought he did okay, but, you know, would they like to see better? Of course. You always want to see better.
2: Well, and I think it goes back to what Patrick Graham talked about yesterday when he met with the media, and he got very philosophical in that conversation. I know John and Jeff talked about this yesterday, so we don't necessarily have to rehash, but the point was it's going to be dictated based on matchup. It's going to be dictated based on personnel, and that's why Patrick Graham has mixed and matched all season long, which is good because it should be fluid. Just because it works well with one matchup doesn't mean that's the alignment you want to utilize in the other matchup Yes. It's fair to say, though, Paul, when you're going up against a team like Tampa Bay, even though Chris Godwin was heard and they have not inserted Antonio Brown into the mix, he'll make his debut Sunday. I would still argue there were a number of proven commodities between the tight ends and the wide receivers that Tampa Bay showcases. Washington's a little bit different. However, as we move forward here and start to preview this matchup, they are expected to get Steve Sims back. And, you know, that should not be overlooked. He was a guy that's been a consistent playmaker. He had spent time on IR. We saw Cam Sims made the touchdown grab that set up the two-point conversion attempt at the end of the game. And, of course, Terry McLaurin is one of the most dangerous wide receivers, even though he hasn't been in the league very long. So I wouldn't dismiss this Washington receiving core. I think it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, outside of McLaurin, they don't really have a lot of playmakers outside of Gibson in the running attack. But there are some players that, I've been acclimated within this system over the last few weeks, and I see this Washington team getting more and more comfortable as the weeks go by. So they're still very much a dangerous team. It's a divisional game. We know the disparity between teams is very narrow, as we saw in that first matchup. So, you know, I still don't think Patrick Graham is going to get conservative in this game or maybe ultra aggressive. I think he's going to find an area in between because the minute you start overlooking an opponent like this, as we saw against the Cowboys the other week, you know, they can certainly still have the tendency to put up points and put together some continuous drives, which was the case, of course, in that first matchup against the Giants.
1: Well, basically, to be honest with you, Lance, they're a dink and dunk team. I mean, if you look at the game that they played at MetLife Stadium, uh, Kyle Allen was 11 for 11 passing on short throws right over the middle in the heart of the Giants defense. 11 of 11. Now, for the day, he was 31 of 42 for only 288 yards. They sacked him three times, they hit him nine times. Giants pass rush had a pretty good day, but again, it was a dink and dunk game. That's what Allen wants to do. That's the 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 um, the talent level and the skill set of the guys he has. He really doesn't have a deep game with this team. Mc- McLaurin is, is not really your typical deep threat. He but wants, he's got speed, though.
2: He does, he does have speed.
1: speed, but he's not really your typical game-breaking deep threat. He wants to hit McKissick coming out of the backfield. He wants to hit Thomas with the short stuff. He wants to hit Inman with the short stuff. I mean... Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six. As I look at my numbers from, la- from that last matchup, there were six different targets that had at least three receptions in that game from the Giants, and it was all short stuff. I mean, for example, McLaurin only had seven catches for 74 yards. It's all short stuff. It, it's, a t- it's a totally dink and dunk attack. I know Sims had the long touchdown catch, I understand that, but that was an aberration. That's not what they want to do. If you're the Giants, you want to look at the short game, middle of the field where Allen was 11 of 11. And that's where he really made his bread and butter. On those short crossing routes, short slants, the little sit-down dump-offs, that's where he got the most of his yardage. And that's where he led the Redskins back into the game as they nearly stole one.
2: Now, keep in mind, though, as we focus on the middle of the field, remember, Tate Crowder played really good in that game. He had the return fumble for a touchdown. And he had 10 tackles, correct. Six solo. Blake Martinez had 14 tackles, eight solo. Those two really did a lot of the heavy lifting. Crowder, though, is now on IR. So you don't have him. That means the middle of the field is still going to be an important part of the dialogue in this game because even if you don't go for the home run, With Washington, you could still easily move the chains, Paul, with the dinking and dunking, okay? An eight-yard pass still gives you a favorable second down or a third down and makes it extremely easier to pick up the first down with maybe a rushing play outside of that. Plus, Gibson, remember, is somebody that also had four catches for 25 yards in that game, and they don't shy away from dumping it off to him and then relying on Yak, yardage after the catch. So the, the reason I'm bringing that up is the ability to tackle in the open field in a game like this is important, and the ability to hustle sideline from sideline. That's why Crowder's presence was so crucial in that game. Who then steps in for him, who fills that void, is going to be certainly something to watch.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. And when you look at the athleticism that's required to be able to, you know, cover those short dinks and dunks over the middle, you're probably not looking at Mayo, who is more of a run-stopping inside linebacker. Uh, I think you could. I mean, I'm not really that confident that Devontae Downs is really the guy you'd want to put there either. I I could see, because he's played a number of snaps on the inside this year, and Judge mentioned it the other day in terms of his versatility, Kyle Fackrell maybe picking up some extra snaps and moving to the inside, especially in some type of sub-package where maybe, you know, they're going with an extra DB on the outside or they're, they're, they're going with Trent Harris who they seem to want to get some snaps for last week as a pass rusher off the edge. And so maybe Fackrel and Martinez wind up being more uh, patrolling that area of the field.
2: No, I think that's a fair point. I would also throw in, I think, a guy like Jabril Peppers, because, you know, even though you're playing on the back end, to be able to see the field and come up and help support the linebackers to clean up perhaps anything that gets away from them, I think Peppers could play a significant role in this game. He had six tackles in the first matchup, four solo. As I mentioned, Martinez and Crowder, when they combine for 24, it alleviates the pressure put on the safeties to be that safety valve. But a guy like Peppers without Crowder there, I think you can look at him as somebody that can really help set the tone on the back end.
1: Yeah, I don't think that's out of the question at all. He certainly has to be one of the viable options. And, you know, this all comes down to, you know, Coach Graham needs to figure out, okay, how much do you want to pressure Because that will determine the personnel that you're going to use, as well as the alignments and the scheme. You know, do you want to necessarily send a lot of heat after Allen? Or do you believe, you know what, Uh, we got three sacks and nine hits on him last time. You know, do we really have to overcommit to sending extra pressure packages? Or do I think that the guys up front can kind of do what they need to do since Washington's offensive line has struggled?
2: Yeah, I don't know how ultra-aggressive you need to be in a game like this. I I think it's more important to play fundamentally sound defense, keep everybody in front of you, and prevent them from taking the chances like that Cam Sims touchdown for perhaps a deep ball when all of a sudden the receivers get behind the Giants' secondary. I mean, that's the type of game that I think the Giants will be effective with. You know, force Kyle Allen to make plays and force him to come through. Now, I thought Washington moved the ball effectively throughout the game even without the explosive plays. Remember, they came back. One of the big turning points was when Washington was going to punt and then the offsides, or I should say the roughing of the punter, then ultimately gave Washington a fresh set of downs, and then they were able to capitalize with a touchdown to Logan Thomas right before the end of the first half. Outside of that... You know, it wasn't as if there were a lot of back-breaking plays that Washington performed, but this is where we get back to playing the trenches, as you just alluded to, Paul. I see the game the same way as I thought it would play out in the first matchup. Whoever sets the tone inside, to me, is going to be in the driver's seat because there were multiple turnovers in this game. The Giants scored a touchdown, which gave them the lead, and then they were able to hold them off by Washington failing to convert on the two-point conversion. But who runs the ball effectively? And who does a good job of protecting their quarterback? You know, that to me is the biggest difference maker. I know you could say that about most games this season, but I think it probably takes on even more significance in a game like this when you know Washington not has not had a track record of really breaking things open with those explosive plays.
1: No, I mean, look, let's go back to the matchup game, you know, that I always talk about that Parcells taught me many, many years ago. And when you look at the matchup on both sides of the ball here, There is only one matchup head-to-head that really favors Washington going into this game, and that is their defensive line against the Giants' offensive line. I mean, I think no matter how much the Giants' offensive line has started to inch forward over the last few weeks, you still have to look at, at the Washington defensive line, say that is realistically one of the top five in the NFL. Although, let's not forget, Then in that last game at MetLife Stadium, they had one sack and five quarterback hits. They were basically neutralized. The Giants O line played one of its best games of the season in really eliminating that advantage. I truly believe, and by the way, Sterling Shepard did not play in that game, which was another reason that the Giants' offense had some difficulties. Remember, he is probably their best route runner, and the guy who they can look to to get the most separation to make things easier for Daniel Jones to hit an open man, that's a big deal. It really is a lot more than people realize Landon Collins, of course, no longer playing for Washington either because, you know, he tore his Achilles. So he's out for the season. So curl the rookie is going to be playing safety. That's a big deal. Okay, no, the only matchup going into Sunday that favors Washington is their D-line against the Giants offensive line. The D-line is good enough on Washington that on any given Sunday, they can control the tempo, and they can win a game. They're that they're that good. Now, they weren't able to do it at MetLife Stadium. I suspect the Giants will have similar success against them this week. Will it be enough to win? Well, it depends on how the rest of the team performs. But in all honesty, Lance, to me, if the Washington D-line does not dominate the game on Sunday, I don't see a lot of ways for them to win.
2: Well, they had six sacks against the Cowboys in their game before the bye in week seven, they got 22 on the season. That's the sixth best mark in the NFL. And it goes without saying, I mean, that's the heart and soul of the team. That's the unit that has made a lot of game changing plays. I mean, even if you go back to week one, when they played the Eagles, granted the Eagles had a banged up offensive line, but they made them pay and they had eight sacks in that game. So 14 of the sacks have come in two games just to provide context and If the Giants handle their business just like they did against Tampa Bay, even though they fell short against Tampa Bay, they didn't allow the Tampa Bay front to be disruptive – from start to finish, and I thought that was a significant means of keeping that game competitive and keeping that game close. Another guy, though, that I think is critical to mention and was a difference maker was Kendall Fuller, who had the interception in the back of the end zone. You can tell me all you want about it, it was a borderline interception. The bottom line is it was an INT. His elbow was season.
1: out. His elbow was outside. Well, okay. I mean, his listen, elbow we hit the back line. That it that was not an interception, Lance. You and I both know that it was not. Well,
2: I thought it was very, very close, and I said that on the air when we were reviewing the game. I stand by that. And the bottom line is, it went down as an interception, Paul. It did. So we can, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what yeah, the yeah. records say.
1: <laughs> you're right. You're right. The NFL okay, counted so. <laughs> it. The NFL counted it, so it's real. It's real. They counted it, but uh, my eyes told me otherwise.
2: Well, and once again, we can debate it all we want, but I do think Fuller has been very solid this season overall. And I think the Giants need to be careful, specifically Daniel Jones, because the secondary I don't think gets enough credit. To your point, Landon Collins is hurt, and they've made some changes at the safety position. But Fuller has been their one staple, and he's more than capable of wreaking havoc, even if you decide to throw him the football, because he's capable of making plays. He's been opportunistic. He's been really solid in terms of passes defensed. So that's a guy you got to be cautious of because he can be a game changer. So, you know, that goes back to Daniel Jones' decision making and knowing when to press the envelope and when not to and when hold back. And that was something that obviously Jason Garrett talked about when he spoke to the media the other day. So, you know, this is going to be another tight affair in all likelihood. All these games have been. They've all come down to the wire. And that's why these small nuances, these small things certainly serve as Difference Makers, as you are tuning in to Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, as well as the mobile app and multiple podcast platforms. Giants fans get a New York Giants checking account from Investors Bank with a Giants branded debit card, security features, and discounts at the Giants online shop. You can earn up to $250 when you open an account at investorsbank.com Giants member FDIC. One other injury note for Washington, Cornelius Lucas in all likelihood is going to start at left tackle because Jaren Chris Christian, their main left tackle, has been sidelined with a knee injury. Lucas did start the last game right before the bye against the Dallas Cowboys. Let's open up the phone lines as we move along here on Friday's edition of BBKL. Peter is in the Florida Keys. He gets us going. What's happening, Peter? Hello, Peter. Are you there? Peter. Hello, once? hello, hey. Peter. Yes, now we hey hear. Here there. Him. What's Hi. Happening? Perfect.
0: Perfect. So I had a couple comments and then a question for you guys. Um, first comment I had: I'm actually looking forward if Lemieux does get that start this week, because um, you know watching the game, I really didn't hear his name called. And obviously, when you don't hear an offensive lineman's name call, that's normally a pretty good thing. There wasn't a lot of inside push that I saw, and uh, it seemed like Daniel Jones had a pretty good pocket throughout pretty much most of the game. So. I was very very happy with his um, his production or lack thereof of the adversary, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing him a second time to see if this is full hold or you know see see how that works out. Um, Another another quick comment I had, you know, we're one in seven, and a lot of the times when a team is one in seven, there's coaches that might be on the hot seat. Um, and specifically there's players that after one and seven, they, they don't buy into the coach and they a turn on the coach. So I th- this week, the last couple of weeks, I've been looking to try to see, you know, what is the pulse of the team players wise. And it's been kind of fun to listening. You know, one of my favorite things to do is listen to the players uh, interviews and you guys do a great job of that. You know, pretty much all the giants and the, the reporters do, they ask some pretty good questions. What I noticed is, you know, the vets, they kind of give pretty much the same answers. You know, you don't, you get some stuff, but you don't really get a lot of meat and potatoes. But what I love to do is is dial in on the rookies, like the young, young guys. Because to be perfectly honest, they don't know any better. They'll give you a little bit more meat and potatoes. And what what I love to hear just recently is that nobody's throwing uh, nobody's throwing judge under the bus. It, it seems like Judge after one and seven, he still has a pretty commanding buy-in from the players. You know, and it's
2: pretty cool to hear. Do you,
0: do you guys agree with that?
2: Well, it's a young roster, Peter. So, I mean, you pretty much summed it up when you said those guys don't know any better. If you are one or two years into your NFL career, the mindset of, well, I'm going to check out for the final six or seven games, it's impossible to have that mindset when you know all the film you put on display is going to impact your future opportunities, both with the Giants and maybe externally. I mean, even a guy like Carter Coughlin, who spoke to the media this week, he's one of those players, when he was addressing the media, I mean, the kid's like at a candy store because he just got his first (coughs) sack, but also he's getting more playing time. So that, to me, is the main reason why you're not worried about or you're not seeing any concern about guys being frustrated is because they're just starting off their careers, the bulk of the roster. I mean, we're talking about 50% of the roster – Three years or less in terms of time allotted in their career. So when you have such a young roster, I don't think that ever is a concern, regardless of what the team's status is, record wise.
1: You know, I think you've made a very interesting observation about the rookies, but I think a much more uh, valuable observation is how the veterans have reacted to this situation. And I'll tell you why. Because when you're a pro in this league and you know you only have so many years in your career, And, you know, you get into your third, your fourth year or even your fifth year. All of a sudden, you know, you start counting the games and the years that you've been in the league. And you're saying to yourself, well, how many chances am I going to get to make the playoffs? How many chances am I going to get to maybe touch a championship game or, hey, God willing, a Super Bowl? It's easy to be frustrated. It's easy to look at your paycheck and say, hey, I'm making a lot of money and maybe I'm going to be thinking more business-oriented than I am football-oriented. I'm not saying that that's acceptable because it's not, but there are guys who do it. And trust me, being around this league as long as I have, I have seen that happen. And there are two situations that usually lead to veterans starting to be that way and having a fractured locker room. One is when you just lose a lot and you get blown out and hammered and guys are just like starting to lose their heart because they're getting whacked all the time. The other time is when teams suffer horrible gut-wrenching dramatic punches to the stomach like the Giants have week after week after week. They are one in 5 in games decided in the final minute. Do you know how easy it would be for a veteran to just say, "Look, man, this is this is just killing me. I can't keep putting it all on the line because we keep getting kicked in the stomach it would be very easy for that locker room to start losing its heart its intensity its guts its emotion and Joe Judge and this staff have not let that happen these guys play for each other these guys play for this coaching staff that is perhaps the most valuable observation that I could give you about this team
2: Well, I also think, though, connected to that, a lot of the veterans that were brought onto the roster, and and Peter, we appreciate the phone call getting some feedback, so we'll let you go on that note. Thanks so much for weighing in, is the fact that they have established relationships with members of the coaching staff, Paul. For example, Nate Ebner and Logan Ryan, okay, they knew Joe Judge. So even if the record's not great, those two guys are particular, they know the coach. They respect him. You know they're going to continue to play hard. Cam Fleming has an established relationship with Mark Colombo and Jason Garrett. Devontae Freeman just joined the team, and nobody else had signed him. So that guy's playing for future opportunities. Leonard Williams was given the franchise tag. He doesn't have a long-term contract. Deion Lewis has ties to New England. So the point is, a lot of the veterans, as I'm looking through the roster, Paul, Put aside how the Giants are looking record-wise, the fact that they brought in guys that had strong ties to the people that are trying to turn things around, I think that also is sort of an inner-lying protection of... Of things getting out of hand, Graham Gano, another veteran. Well, he's had ties to Thomas McGahey and ties to Dave Gettleman. How about Bradbury? The ties to Bradbury, another guy. Martinez
1: and will tied to Green Bay. There you go. uh, Okay, so we
2: pretty much we went through the entire bulk of the veteran roster, right? We just named at least ten guys, if not more. The common thread here is establish relationships. That to me is a good way to protect yourself from things getting out of hand and unraveling very quickly.
1: Well, that works because the coaching staff you hired is of such high character that when they say, look, this guy is okay, I know this guy will play hard, I know this guy will set the standard of what you want in the locker room, the organization can believe in that and believe in those players. So, yes, I do believe the connection is good, but why is it good? It's good because those are the kinds of mentalities that those guys are going to want to surround themselves with as coaches, and then in turn those players then come in and form the unity and the chemistry and the environment that you want in the locker room. I do think that plays a part of it, and this is just another reason to praise Dave Gettleman for the roster that he's put together because not only do they have that kind of coaching staff, but utilizing their connections, they have built a locker room that is pouring a terrific foundation of concrete and cement for a house that is probably going to be good for a number of years.
2: So I believe we got Peter back on the line. He wanted to make one other quick comment. So Peter, we'll bring you back on real quick. What what else you got?
0: For sure. Um, So during the game, there were two or three calls that, um, there were passes to wide receivers and the Giants defenders didn't turn their head back and it wasn't called a defensive penalty. I'm trying to understand what the heck, uh, uh, pass interference calls for DBs are. I thought if a, a ball is thrown, you know, say a 30, 40 yard pass down the sideline, I noticed that, and this might be a coaching thing. When I noticed that they were beat a little bit, and two times it happened to Bradbury, he was maybe a step behind. Instead of turning his head back, he put his hand right where the receiver was about to catch the ball. He didn't turn his head back, and it wasn't a penalty. I was screaming at the TV, oh, man, we got a penalty, we got a penalty. Can you guys maybe set some light? Because I could have sworn 100% that would have been a flag. And thanks for taking my call, guys. Appreciate
2: it. All right, Peter. Appreciate the vocal. I believe there was another play where Isaac Yadam had a great play where he was watching the receiver's hands, and then he put his hand in the passing lane and was able to knock the ball away. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, nor should that warrant a flag, because you know part of pass interference, even if you're not looking back at the ball, Paul, is did you make contact with the receiver before the ball arrives so even if you're not looking back at the ball if you get your hand in and the ball comes down and you deflect it cleanly without hitting the receiver there's nothing to debate there that's not interference that's just a clean pass defense and good execution
1: all right i'll make it simple for you because i'm simply going to read you the pass interference definition it's not very complicated and it's not very long I, I want the caller to, to be able... I'm, I, I don't know if he's got the NFL rulebook, so I want him to be able to, to hear it right from the league. It is pass interference by either team when any act by a player more than one yard behind the, beyond the line of scrimmage significantly hinders an eligible player's opportunity to catch the ball. Pass interference can only occur when a forward pass is thrown from behind the line of scrimmage, regardless of whether the pass is legal or illegal when it crosses the line. Now... Understand, and I don't want to necessarily pick on the the guy who picked up the flag uh, on the two-point conversion in Tampa Bay, but by that definition, I think it's pretty clear what should have happened. The flag was thrown. The referee who threw the flag understood the rule. He saw what happened. He threw it and then was convinced somehow to pick it up, saying that the ball got there simultaneously with the contact. I'm sorry. I didn't see it that way at all. I do believe if that defender had not been there, that the pass was close enough to Ryan Lewis, even though it was thrown a little bit late. Dion and little Lewis. Li- yeah. uh, Deion Lewis. Even though it was a little bit late and a little bit behind him, that was a very catchable ball. Just think about it for a second. Remove the defender from that equation. Let's just say the defender's not there. Was the pass good enough to be caught? There's no question the pass was good enough to be caught. The defender prevented Lewis from the opportunity to make the grab. That's really all you need to know.
2: Well, I mean, that's the goal of the defender, of course, to prevent the offensive player from making the catch. So, I mean, I I think that's a very generic interpretation, if you were to ask me. I thought it was a bang-bang play. I thought it was very close, and I could see both sides of it. And that's sometimes the line that's drawn when it comes to pass interference. But going back to the individual's question, you can read me every definition you want, Paul. The bottom line is, pass interference is a judgment call. Okay, it's the interpretation yeah, that's the, of the rule.
1: That's the roughest thing about it because it is yeah. a judgment call, so it's always going to be blurry. Exactly. And, and let me make clear this this incident against Tampa, which clearly to me was pass interference, was not nearly as obvious as what happened to the Saints in the playoff game two oh, years ago. Uh, that's night and day. Okay, yeah, that 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 was so atrocious that you know, <laughs> oh my goodness! Look, the league wound up changing the rule for a year because it was so atrocious. This one was not to that level, but again, to me, it was still pretty clear.
2: Well, the other thing, though, that, remember, happens in light of a play on Monday night is, as you've seen, Paul, you know, people take those still photo shots, right, and they do the slow motion. The ref is not looking at it at that rate. So I find it a little comical when people, they show, you know, somebody holding another player's hand as if a ref is all of a sudden having superpowers and he's part of the Marvel comic hero books and he's got the eyesight to hone in and see it frame by frame. That's not happening. So, you know, anybody who then after the fact goes frame by frame, to me that defeats the purpose. They did the same thing with the Saints-Rams play. It defeats the purpose of frame by frame. It's all about real-time speed totally what agree a with human you. being is going to be. Speed.
1: No, Gilance, on this, we are a 1,000% in agreement I don't think going frame-by-frame is a very accurate way to review a call because you're not seeing it in live speed. Live speed is actually a different play than in frame-by-frame. You're actually changing the entire perspective of the play. And and that, to me, I've never been a fan of let's get to the frame-by-frame to determine if it was touched or not. No, no. Look at it again on replay in live speed. Look at it from every angle you want to. That to me is a much more fair way because there are times when you can look at it from a different angle and in live speed and say, okay, you know what? We screwed up that call. You, you can still identify screwed up calls that way. You don't have to go frame by frame where to be perfectly frank with you, it's a different play when you look at it in, in one different. one hundredth of slow motion. It really is. I agree with you 1,000%. I would also say to you, though, that the official that threw the flag on the two-point conversion the other night was in the best position to see if the defender had committed a foul. He was the one in the best position, and he was the one who threw the flag. So, to be honest, I think any of the other officials who wanted to conference with him should have deferred to him since he had the best angle at the play.
2: And we've seen flags get picked up. It doesn't happen very often. I thought Logan Ryan brought up a good point. And I'm not saying that it's the same exact play. But, you know, for people that want to say, oh, well, you know, teams are favored one way or the other. Remember, there was a critical play where Brady threw one over the middle. I think it was Tyler Johnson. And it was a hard hit. Johnson held on to the football. But they initially, you thought, were going to call Logan Ryan for unnecessary roughness or helmet-to-helmet hit. And they conferred. And they determined that he went in with a shoulder and they picked up the flag. So, I mean, it goes both ways. We've seen it happen throughout the course of the game. It always is frustrating. I get it from a fan's perspective. When it comes down to the final play, which could have forced overtime, of course that's going to be magnified. But I think we also need to look at it from the standpoint of what occurred earlier in the game where there was a flag picked up that helped the Giants, and also when it's a bang-bang play, which is my interpretation of that last play, I think it could go both ways. But you bring up a fair point, Paul, that if the flag was thrown initially and that was the guy that had the best vantage point, then how is it that two other individuals come in, confer, and then all of a sudden it's reversed?
1: Well, think of it this way, Lance. That's the
2: human element of football.
1: You've certainly watched a lot of years of football, as I have, and I would say without quoting statistics... More often than not, in fact, almost any time you have seen a pass interference flag pulled up off the field, it's because of one of two things. Either the ball was tipped, right, tipped yep. at the line, and all of a sudden the ref says, no, no, it was tipped up at the line. Oh, okay, we're going to pick up the flag. Or the other reason is they determined that the ball was uncatchable, that it was so far away from the receiver that it the contact did not hinder the receiver from the ability to catch the ball. I would say 99 times out of 100, a pass interference flag that is pulled up is because of one of those two reasons. That's, yeah. just, that's just the way it goes. So to pull up that flag in that spot, to me, is also extremely unorthodox. Whatever you thought you saw, to pull up that flag is really a, a very rare type of situation.
2: The New York Giants at Quest Diagnostics want our fans to come back stronger than ever. Now you can order your own lab test through Quest Direct to get the health answers you need most. Lance Meadow, Paul DeTito, with you here on Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, getting set for the rematch between Giants and Washington coming up on Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Big Blue Kickoff Live is presented by New York Lottery. Get out there and play. Let's head back to the lines at 201-939-4513. And let's check in with Joe in Pennsylvania. Joe, what's happening?
3: Uh, you start talking about the refs in the last play of the game. and What burned me before that was two plays there, I think, on Tampa Bay's last drive. They they were called our our safeties, I believe, for coming in and leading with the helmet. The one they picked up, they talked and picked up. But that last one, you know, their receiver, he dropped his head. Yeah, the one on Yottam. Speak.
1: The one on Yottam, right? That's the one you didn't uh, like?
3: he dropped his head but yeah. and our and our whoever the cornerback was i forget he turned his shoulder and everything you know and you know they still called it and that set up them you know first and goal really truly that burned me more than in that last play, you know of the what's game. interesting,
1: Joe? And I'll tell you something, and Lance, please feel free to disagree. I know you like to do that anyway. No, it's not a liking, <laughs> it's how I honestly the, feel. I'm not the, doing it for the sake of the, saying it. The helmet to helmet hits, I truly believe that they should be reviewed. Much like a turnover is always reviewed, I think helmet to helmet hit is such an important point of emphasis and such an important safety factor in today's NFL that I truly believe any helmet-to-helmet penalty should be reviewed. I really believe that because I I think it goes beyond the sensibilities of can we see it, can we not see it. No, this is a point of safety and a point of emphasis in the league. If it's that important, then put it in the same category as a scoring play or a turnover. Make it a reviewable play.
2: Well, especially because of the significance of how many yards you could then gain as a result of that call. I'd have no problem if they wanted to build that into automatic review. The play, by the way, that we were discussing is when Cameron Brait had a 25-yard gain, so Yadam was called for lowering the head to initiate contact, and then the very next play, Brady hits Mike Evans for the 8-yard touchdown pass. That's where All it occurred. Right. That was uh, midway through the fourth quarter.
3: And, and if they would have reviewed that play, he would have got it for lowering his head. We turned our shoulder, you know what I mean, the cornerback, if you look at that. You know, and if he got him anywhere, he he might have got a little bit on the side of his helmet or our receiver, but, you know, it, whatever. And there was pass plays— it just burned you there was uh uh past defenses against bad bradbury you know what i mean they they were there was one that was okay but the other one i thought was very questionable yeah i did too too. uh so uh whatever but uh i I think really i i on the positive side our offense and defense is, is playing good our offensive line and uh you know, really, I think Daniel, that last play, I I think it, it's going to start registering his head, and he's going to start throwing the ball out of bounds or take the sack a little more, but, you know, and uh, that's all I can say. You know, I think we're definitely moving in the right direction. So uh, thank you for I taking joke.
2: my call. Yeah, appreciate the phone call. Thanks so much for weighing in. Let's uh, head back to the lines. Len is in Maryland. Len, what's happening? Hey, guys. How you doing? Hi. You're all right, Len. What do you got for us?
4: A couple of things real quick. One, um, the second time you play a team in your division during the year, you you better be able to make adjustments on the fly because you're not going to see that team scheme-wise, play-call-wise, even approach to the game, do many of the things that they did first time around. Another way to put it, the Washington football team will go deep into their playbook this weekend to confuse the Giants. I believe that's true every week, but I believe that's more so when you're playing a division rival second time in the same year.
1: Len, I don't know if they have have, uh, enough of talent in all the different areas of football to be able to significantly change what they did a couple of weeks ago. I really don't. I mean, look at this team. They are very limited in terms of what they're putting on the field.
2: Well, I will say this. Kyle Allen now has a few more starts under his belt. So that's one indication that maybe they could expand what they're doing. Number two, this team also, we didn't mention this. Washington's coming off the bye. And, Paul, when you come off the bye, you know, sometimes you have an opportunity to self-scout and say, okay, this worked effectively, this didn't, we want to now throw this into the playbook. So I don't think it's crazy to think that Washington may have had a little bit more time given when the bye occurred leading right into this game, that maybe they unleashed some new looks. I don't think they're drastically going to change things. I would agree with Paul. I think Washington's identity is what it is. And unless you're bringing in five or six new players you know, then maybe I could see. But I I do think with Allen's experience now And Steve Sims coming back, as I mentioned, Gibson a little bit more comfortable as a lead back. Remember, when he was at Memphis the other year, he had, I think, 33 carries. He's pretty much surpassed that and then some alone in the first few games. So when you consider all of those latter factors, yeah, I don't think it's crazy to think that Washington will change and make some slight changes because of some of the luxuries they've had. Sure,
1: I just don't think they can do too much dramatically. I, I would say if I were Ron Rivera, the way that first game played out, Uh, and if the Giants are going to take away the dink and dunk stuff over the middle, uh, to me, Gibson would be the guy that I'd be turning to. If I was going to make any changes in that Washington offensive scheme, I would try to emphasize Gibson because I think, what do you have, like 15 touches in that Giants game a month ago?
2: It wasn't very much. Yeah, he was involved heavily in terms of the rushing. Let me look it up. I got it in front of me. He had nine carries, and then he wound up getting four receptions. So he had 13 touches.
1: And that's not nearly enough.
2: He's got to yeah. get more. He absolutely has to get more touches, no doubt about it. Okay. Yep. Uh, let, me,
4: let me just kind of bring that to closure real quick. All I want to say to, to, you know, to close it off is be ready, Giants, because you're going to need to make adjustments, and you're going to need to make them really quick early in the game. Second point, two numbers stand out to me, and both uh, somewhat scientific. It's just a feeling that I have. I, I can't compare it to th- uh, 31 other teams, but I, by my count – we've had 67 different guys on the 53-man roster in just half a season. Does that sound like a lot? Or do you think that's kind of happening all over the league? It just sounds high to me, guys. Well, 67? I
1: I haven't done the numbers, but without getting into the math, Len, and and so I can't get into the comparisons. Understand you have a few things at, at at play here. There were more injuries, it seems like, this year, obviously, because yeah. they didn't have all the regular off season and preseason and camp. But you also have the fact that practice squad guys can get promoted, you know, left and right. You, you know, you're having the two yeah. practice squad exceptions yeah, every yeah, single true, week. True. Yeah. So that's yeah. going to rise the number up a lot. And then and then you got your COVIDs, not just your COVID guys who are positive, but you got the COVID guys who are tracers, who are also being forced out of the lineup. So there are a ton of reasons why you're going to have a lot of new faces coming onto the active roster every week.
4: Yeah, I, listen, I agree with you. That's that's a very good point. It just seemed like a big number to me. And uh, you know we added two this week with Pederson Wiggins, uh, you know two new guys. Yeah, but you have to so, understand,
2: um, Len. Life in the NFL is fluid. I mean, there's a high yeah, turnover yeah, rate. So yeah, you know, yeah, I don't yeah. think that's crazy. I mean, look at the Niners. The Niners have been plagued by injuries. I mean, they yeah, had so many changes. Yeah. All
4: right. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. It just seemed like a lot of turnover to me. Uh, second point. Looking at Daniel's numbers from last week, um, sixteen incompletions. Two of them were interceptions. That's a lot of incompletions, guys. Um, you know you talked about Kyle Allen in the first game against us what what did he have eleven incompletions when, when you start getting more than fifteen incompletions in a game, man, the ball's hitting the ground a lot of times or hitting the you know the guy with the other color uniform on. it just seemed like you know a number that just seemed v- very high to me and I'll, I'll let that go at that point, but it just seemed like a lot of incompletions on his part. My right, third part, how do we measure growth going on in this season? You know, second half of the season, eight games to go. Here's what I'm looking at. I want to, First of all, I want to go 3-0 and in the division the second half of the season. That, to me, would indicate this team is growing. Secondly, on January 3rd after we play the Cowboys, maybe it's the Monday after we play the Cowboys, and we have a conversation about the season – I want us to have a feeling, and I'm going to put Dak aside here. I'm going to put Prescott aside. I want us to have a feeling that, that day that we have the best quarterback in the division. Daniel has got to progress to that point. These are not Pro Bowl players we're playing here, guys. Not anywhere close. This is just Kyle Allen, who Ron Rivera happens to like. All right, And it's, and it's Carson Wentz. And forget who the Cowboys are starting. I mean, maybe even Cooper Rush. Can you imagine that? <laughs> in that last game, if we have to face Cooper Rush. I want to have the feeling Daniel's the best quarterback in the division.
1: I think that's reasonable. You, you, could, you, okay. could, you, could, you could ask for that. I don't think that's, okay. that's out All of right. the question. All right.
4: Secondly, secondly let, me, let me go real quick, because you probably have got another call coming in. That left tackle's got to play better. He's got to play better. And we're going to get a good idea of how well this guy can play against Mr. Young on Sunday. You know, we're going to play, Lance, I know you like this, we're going to play the Cincinnati Bengals once in the next four years. We're going to play the Washington Redskins eight times in the next four years. we got to have somebody to stop young. I wanted to start this weekend. When we finish this season in this division, we got a left tackle in place. That center, is this a six-year guy, eight-year guy, or is this just a one-year and we're still looking for a center? We're going to get a big test. We're going to get a big test on Sunday against that nose tackle for, for uh, Washington. He's a heck of a football player. I want to well, I want to finish this season feel like Gates is the answer to this, you know, to this thing. I want to see us cover the tight end in this division. We got to cover the tight end in this division. I want to see Julian Love progress to the point where he shuts down Logan Ryan, Mr. Ingram. I want 20 catches Logan in the, in the three. It, yeah. Okay. 20 catches in the three games coming up. I want three touchdowns in those games. That's how I'm measuring growth for the rest of the season. Let's go Giants. Let's beat this Redskins team. I hate this team. We'll (laughs) talk next week. Thanks, guys.
1: Yeah,
2: appreciate the phone call.
1: Real quick, Lance. Let let me just give uh, Len a little bit of of something that might kind of make him really, really happy, Uh, and that is this Washington team has certainly been susceptible against the run, Um, you know, They've been really good against the pass, but, but, but middle of the pack against the run, specifically, okay, when teams run at right defensive tackle Jonathan Allen, they're averaging five yards a carry, and when they split the two defensive tackles and go directly up the middle, they're averaging over six and a half yards a carry. Okay, that's the the Achilles, if you will, or the soft spot in the Redskins uh, defense. And it's because up front, those guys are so good at getting after the quarterback that clearly when you punch them in the belly and you go right up the middle against them with the running game, they are um, perhaps even a little less interested in playing the run and they can be had there. That, that's the area where teams have had the most effectiveness. So, yeah, is that a reason why, I, I if I'm the Giants, I want to see Devontae Freeman get back in the lineup and do what he does? Because he's very gritty, and those are the kinds of spots where he's going to gain yardage.
2: Well, Washington's also allowed five of its seven opponents to get over the century mark. So I think that's also another indication that teams, for the most part, have had success well, against them. And that's them where
1: the they do it. Yeah, That's where they do it. That's the place to attack. You'll go between Allen and Payne.
2: And there's no reason why the Giants shouldn't feel that way because if you go back to that last game against Tampa Bay that the last caller was bringing up, forget the amount of incompletions for Daniel Jones. The fact that they had to throw the ball 41 times, I mean, I think that's a number you want to shy away from. You know, you don't want to have to have your quarterback throw 40-some-odd times, especially with the issues in terms of ball security. The more times you put the ball in the air, just do the basic math the more likelihood you're going to give the opposition an opportunity to get a takeaway. So the Giants certainly want that number to come down. You want that to get more even.
1: Daniel Jones is throwing the ball an average of 34 times a game. And I think this is no secret, Lance. You know how I feel about it. I'd like to see that number more like 28, 29, 30, especially in very important games. You know, there are games, and I say very important, that's probably not the right description to use. There are some games where you really want that number to be down in the 25, 27 range. There are other games you know it's probably going to have to be in the low 30s. But a game like this against, the, against this Washington team, I'd like that number to be to be down. I'm not looking for 34 throws out of Jones this week.
2: Well, if you go back to the first matchup, he threw it 19 times. That was it, Paul. Yeah, they ran the ball twenty six times. He threw nineteen. Now, part of that Washington controlled the clock based on game flow.
1: Washington had the ball for over thirty three minutes.
2: Yeah, well, and that's what I said. Game flow. You got to take all of that into consideration. So you can't go into a game saying, "Yeah, a quarterback is only going to throw nineteen times." That to me is on the bit of the low side. No, but the
1: point is, you to me, you want to attack because of their front four and their pass rush. You want to attack their rush defense. That to me is the starting point offensively when you formulate the game plan for Sunday.
2: And I don't think that they should shy away from that also because if I'm the Giants, Paul, the mindset I think should be, well, Washington had trouble slowing us down on the ground the first time. Let's see if they made adjustments, okay? Let's see if they now went back and looked at the film and can solve the riddle. If the team can't do that, then there's no reason why you change things up. Earlier, we were talking about the game of chess when you're playing a team for the second time, specifically in the division. Well, while yes, you always have to make adjustments, but I think... Number one is let's see if the opposition actually learned from their mistakes, okay? If the opposition didn't learn from their mistakes, then you continue to run the ball down their throat until they can all of a sudden punch back. If they can't punch back, then there's no point to switching it up. So you also need to walk that fine line of being careful. Do we want to show different things because we think we were a little too predictable in the first time? Or maybe feel good about, hey, we like what we did. We executed Now let's see if they can come back at us.
1: See, I always feel do what you do well and then throw the change up in later on if it's not going so well. I'm I'm always of the aggressive mentality. Parcells used to say all the time, you want to impose your will on the opposition. You want to be in control of the game and the tempo of the game. So do what you believe you can do well against them. And then if there have to be some changes made, you make those changes, you know, going into the second quarter. But come out in the first game trying to establish what it is that you want that game to look like.
2: That's why the run-pass ratio is something to monitor in this game. Because if I'm Washington, if I'm Jack Del Rio, I'm going into this game saying, we want Daniel Jones to throw the ball at least 35 times. No doubt. That's what my philosophy would be, Paul. No doubt. If I'm Jack Del Rio. Yep. Because I want opportunities at takeaways. I want Daniel Jones to shoulder the load. I do not want him to get 19 pass attempts.
1: Correct. And I also would like to give my front four a chance to sack him. Correct. No question. I'm with you a thousand percent.
2: And I'm looking at the numbers. I'm bringing it up. I know you gave the average... Since the Washington game, Jones then had 30 pass attempts against Philly and, as I mentioned, 41 against the Bucks. Then, if you go the two previous games before the Washington game, 36 times against the Rams, 33 against the Cowboys. So what that leads me to believe, if you look at the last five games – Four of the teams got Daniel Jones to throw the ball at least 30 times. I think that's every defensive coordinator's philosophy, and that's why the rushing attack in this game is so important. Don't give Washington any more opportunities to make plays on the ball. I concur Wear with you, them down Lance. with the ground attack.
1: I concur with you. Look, yeah. uh, John's telling me we got to give up the studio, so we got to Absolutely,
2: run. and I was planning on wrapping up just <laughs> as we got to that point that we wanted to emphasize. So, with that being said, that is going to wrap up Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. It is presented by New York Lottery. Get out there and play. And as a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network, brought to you by Investors Bank, on uh, the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So we will have our radio pregame show starting at 1130 a.m. on WFAN in New York City. You can also listen on Giants.com. We'll continue to set the stage for the Giants and Washington coming your way in week nine on Sunday. Paul, look forward to chatting you over the weekend. Good to talk to you, Lance. Absolutely. Thanks to Pearson for his assistance. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Friday. Enjoy the weekend and stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.